Hey, look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Come on, don't lie to them like you did last week. Say, it's good to see you. Hey, we're so glad that you're here at Crossroads Church. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. Uh, And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. I know you haven't forgotten this. This is what we say around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. What that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get a Bible to you. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take that, read that every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Three of you think that? Uh, Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. There we go. So, hey, turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. And we've been in this uh, book for many weeks now, and we'll continue on for the next 27 years. And uh, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We're actually making some good ground. And, and uh, so if you're new to the Bible, you can start in the right and turn left. You'll find it much faster. Some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and John, two-thirds of the way through. We'll find chapter 7. We're going to read uh, in verse 25 and through the end of the chapter. I'm going to read the totality of the chapter. I'm going to try to uh, explain some of the, the kind of deeper meaning and the reason why uh, John writes these particular things. And I'm trying to tell uh, some stories that help with the implication of that. And hopefully uh, it will challenge us and exhort us and cause us to think more and more about who the person of Jesus is. If you're watching online, we're so glad that you're on there. I got to interact with some of you uh, like we would in the lobby or afterwards. And so if you have a prayer request, you can hit the prayer request tab and you'll enter into a chat with one of our staff members and they'll take your prayer request. It's safe and secure and and we just want to connect with you. And also there's a Bible tab there. You can click on the Bible tab and follow along. And if we have sermon notes, uh, which often we do, uh, you can click on that notes and you'll be able to follow along just as if you were gathered with us today. We're so glad you're gathered. The point is gathering, whether you're doing that online or in person. We're so glad that you're here. Hey, look at chapter 7, starting in verse 25, and uh, somewhere there were some glasses, so uh, I'm going to struggle through this uh, real quick. Uh, So verse 25 says this, some of the prophets of Jerusalem therefore said, "Is is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Are they keeping something from us? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Notice that he makes a a distinction. He says, I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Notice what John says 
there. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. And Jesus said, you ain't seen nothing yet. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They sent the muscle. They sent the guys to do the dirty job. Jesus said, then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, and then by Jews, John means the religious leaders, where does this man, in, this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Then verse 37, the next day, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For at for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? Maybe you know something that they don't the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. They came back who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you been deceived? Have the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, the one we're introduced in John 3, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, one of the chief priests. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask for your grace that this word would speak to our heart. It would be nourishment. It would be a drink of water to our souls. Help us. Let us see you more clearly for who you are and who you are to us and everyone said amen I was in the car with all of my children just a couple days ago and and how many of you have small children and it is a great feat to travel anywhere especially travel across the country like we did a few weeks ago can I just give you a little pro tip a little parent pro tip if you're traveling with kids young kids just tell yourself that you've died and gone to hell and when it's over you'll be pleasantly surprised right okay <laughs>
can I get a witness from those of you with man, am I the only one? Like it's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth to go to Lompoc. Are you kidding me? We could go nowhere. And it was just Friday. I was we were traveling, and many of you know the the kind of story of me buying my dream van in Florida and how that all turned out. And uh, and it turned out the the van I bought had some recalls, and so I had to take it to the dealership and drop it off for multiple days. And, and so Friday they were done and I had to go, I needed a ride to slow and Joe was ignoring my phone calls. And, uh, and so I had to load all four of my children and my wife, and we had to go all the way to slow just to turn around and come back after picking up the van. And so what I told him, Hey, we'll make a thing of it. We'll all go together and we'll go to the beach, right? We'll go to the beach and, and it'll be fun. That's all they know. Like we're going to the beach and we get in um, the car and we're driving and, and Ry- my daughter Riley, who's like one and a half, is, is just losing her mind and causing us to lose our mind. And she falls asleep and, and then we make it just past the shell beach kind of turn that goes into Avila and all of a sudden the ocean is out of sight and we go down the hill and I begin to hear this conversation turned argument in the back row from my three-year-old. And my three-year-old has now started an argument with the seven-year-old and he looks and he says, we're totally going the wrong way. What? And he, he's beginning to become frustrated. And, and, and listen, he didn't learn that. He, he's. I, I said, what did he just say? Did he just say totally? Right? He didn't pick that up in Kentucky. I'm going to tell you that right now. Right? Like, he was like, we're totally going the wrong way. Is that my child in the back? He's like, dad. And, and Judah's now my oldest, the seven-year-old, uh, the, the, the golden boy, the, the, the reason of truth, the one I live vicariously through is Justin Beaver hair, right? Like he flipped, he flips his hair around and he's like, dad totally knows where he's going. He's like, no, I saw it. The beach is back that way. He's totally going the wrong way. And, and all of a sudden his perspective, he's beginning to argue. I mean, he is fighting mad. We're going. And I look in the rear view mirror and he's starting to look at me like he wants to do something to me. I'm like, bust a move. You know what I'm saying? He's going to go bad for you through. What do you, what do you mean? I mean, he's looking at me like, Dad, you're totally going the wrong way. Because in his mind, in his limited perspective, all he knows is that at some point we're going to the beach and he saw the ocean back that way and he sees it no more. And Dad is totally going the wrong way. See, sometimes we can get so trapped in our limited perspective that we can't quite see what the Father has planned. Mm, that's pretty good. You see what I did there? Should I stop my foot and preach like a southern preacher? Right? Like the father, right? Like, woo, right? Sometimes we get so trapped in our limited perspective by what we know 
And, and we can oftentimes get so frustrated and so convinced of our perspective and that we know the way to go and that God forbid that your father who's driving has no idea where he's going, right? And, and it causes us, let's be honest, from, from our perspective to become infuriated with those around us when they can't see what we see. How about you? Right? Am I the only flawed human being in this church? Someone say, oh no, to, to that. Right? Let, let me help you. If, if you thought you were coming to a perfect church, you're here and it's no longer perfect. Right? Anyways, and, uh, if, uh, and you're in good company. If you know the pastor, someone say amen to that. And so oftentimes we have our limited perspective and we are set on our way and we're beginning to read the signs around us and we get fixed in our perspective that we will become infuriated even to the point of violence. A three-year-old, he's totally going the wrong way. Way And we can't quite see what the Father is doing. If you read a passage like this, and you begin to ask the question, why are they getting so infuriated by Jesus? I mean, why are they so infuriated to the point where they want to arrest him, try him unfairly, and murder him? Why? Because sometimes we can be locked in our perspective so much so that we think we are right, everyone else is wrong, and violence ensues. I know that you've never seen anything like this. Try to picture it that we can be so trapped and convinced and we'll even look at the roadmap, the signs, and think that we are reading the map correctly, but then we could be far from the truth. See, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they all had a perspective. They all had a way of thinking. They've been looking for this person and and they begin to come up with the equation and and they're beginning to check the resume of Jesus and go he doesn't check this box but they don't even really have any ability to investigate they just throw the news story out first without checking all the facts they're beginning to make assumptions based on what they have investigated without asking other people around what was the real story I know it's really hard to picture how people could come to those types of conclusions but try to bear with me friends right we they do this we do this we're conditioned to that and then I have to ask the question what is John trying to tell me See, sometimes we can get to passages like this, and, and, and maybe if you're new around here, what I want to tell you is we preach through books of the Bible. We allow the Bible to be the rudder for our ship, that we allow it to be the, the steering wheel. We allowed it to guide us, not the pizza I had last night, which I didn't have pizza last night, okay? But that just goes better with the joke, okay? I don't allow my emotions or my philosophies or my ideologies or my political persuasions, which I have many, to allow to be the driver, the theological driver of the congregation that we have gathered here today. And that's good news. Somebody should say amen to that. So we allow books of the Bible to drive. But here is the trap of narrative uh, stories in the scripture. So I want to help you when you read passages like this. Here's what I want to help you do. You have to ask the question, what is this really 
about. And the first thing is you should remember the opening that this is all about. Let's try again. This is all about. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And so fundamentally, it is not about you. That's good news. And, and so the reality is, is that we can oftentimes project ourselves in here. We can extrapolate good principles from this book. And maybe we'll tell a story about Jesus and we'll miss the point and we'll think it's about the character of Jesus or the other people. So what we'll do is we'll extrapolate, well, Jesus did this in the face of adversity. You should do this in the face of of adversity. Or maybe the crowds responded this way. That wasn't the right way to respond. So then you should respond this way. You ever heard sermons like this before? Somebody be honest with it. Amen. This is a typical way of preaching. But if we're not careful, what we'll do is simply give good advice. We'll give therapeutic, moralistic deism where we'll try to give you the God of the greater good or the God of good advice. Can I just tell you that this book is not a book of good advice, although there is some good advice in there, wouldn't you say? Amen. But it's not primarily a good advice book. It is a book, and why it's titled this way, the gospel, the good news, evangelion, according to John. The announcement, this word in the Greek, evangelion, is this word that was used when the announcement of a king. It is news. Someone is carrying news, and they are good investigators and good storytellers giving you the news, the good news. See, the contrast between good news and good advice is good advice presumes on your ability to create the future. What do I mean? If I give you good advice about the job interview you have, and I tell you all the, all the tricks and all the tips that I, just let me let you in on it. The interviewer already knows all your tricks, you know, like the trick of taking your weaknesses and turning into a strength, right? Hey, could you tell us one of your greatest weaknesses? I just work too hard, you know? Right? I just give it, you know, what, what is that? I just give myself fully 110%, you know, uh, to the detriment of my family, my life, and everything that I am, right? Like, like what, they already know the tricks, but here's the thing when you get that good advice, it presumes on your ability to follow through with said advice, keep that advice, and create the future that you hope to have. And all of a sudden, anxiety and depression and things begin to set in when you realize you have no control over the future. And can I tell you that good advice will lead you to a place you do not want to be. But the good news of the gospel is something has happened and everything now changes. That's good preaching. Thank you, pastor. Right. Amen. Right. Good news is the announcement that something has happened. You know, like the news you got that you were going to have your first child, right? Wasn't that a, somebody should say amen to that, right? Some of you have kids, I assume, uh, right? And then, uh, you know, a year and a half later, you're going to have another one, right? And then another one? And then I'm like, are you kidding me? Really? 
right? Do you know what happened all the other times, the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth that you went through to get that, right? And the implications of that, that child, the one that eats rocks, right? The the one that can't sit in the car seat, the one one that screams and drives you nuts. That's news that continues to unravel, friends. And then they become teenagers. Somebody say, oh, no, don't say amen too loud. They're close by, right? And, 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 and then they go to college and they call back, Dad, I need some. <laughs> yeah, of course you do, right? Like, and, and, and then they call you until you're going to have your first grandchild. And, and then they say, hey, we lost our job. Or, hey, I, I met the one. Or I met another one. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? This is news that still to this day, the implications are continuing to unravel. See, news is something that changes your perspective about the past, right? You, 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 things were different before you had kids, <laughs> right? It's just different. Life was different. Dates looked different. The house looked different, friends, <laughs> all right? Uh, And then we had another. Life was different before you had the third, before you had the fourth, before they went to college. Life looked different before they moved back home. Pray them out, friend, right? Uh, uh, Life looked different, and news will change your perspective on what's happened, but also change the course of everything going forward. Evangelion, the good news of Jesus. What is this good news? At Crossroads Church, we define this good news, the gospel, this way. It is the announcement, the declaration that our God has become king by way of the cross, and we must follow suit. That's this announcement. It's far beyond you getting a get-out-of-jail-free card. Do not go to hell uh, and and go straight to uh, boardwalk or whatever. You know, like, uh, this is is more than you having forgiveness of sin and a clear conscience. This is more than you changing your good behavior because you know at your best, the Bible says, you are filthy rags. This is far beyond your moralism, your therapeutic deism. This is the announcement that there is a king and he changes everything. And he starts by building his kingdom in the hearts of his people. And your decision will be, will you follow suit and live as he lived? This is the announcement. This is the story And so more than just extrapolating good characteristics, I have to figure out what is the news that John is proclaiming. Well, I have to ask, what's his point? Why does he give the details that he does? What is the argument that ensues? Why are they so indignant? Why is it their perspective has limited them to a point that whatever Jesus says, oh, oh, you're going to say that? Oh, well, now we're going to arrest you. Now we're going to send the muscle to go after you. Yet everyone stopped dead in their tracks. They have these arguments, but what Jesus says pierces them to the heart, and they are left with making a decision about who he is. You and I, friends, every time we hear the words of Jesus, we'll be stopped in our tracks, we'll be cut to the heart, we'll realize there's a reason why his words have been going viral for thousands of years, and they just hit different. 
They saw it then, you can see it now, but he will woo you and persuade you, but he will not control you and manipulate you. And you will have a decision to see him as a liar, a lunatic, or indeed the Lord of all creation. And you will be left with that decision every single day. You have that decision. So what is he trying to tell us? And why are these arguments there? Well, I have to be reminded of what John says and what the buttery vocals of Tyler Ogletree on the video says when we start and why we play it every single week before the sermon and why we give it a title and a theme so that you can realize the purpose of the gospel of John is so that you may believe. So that you may believe what? See, that's the question. What do you believe about Jesus? And is he actually who he says he is? Maybe you remember from the video, we'll kind of walk through this. This is John 20, verse 31. It says this, that many other signs were done, but not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you've been here through the series, you've heard that over and over. So let's try that together. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So when I read the chapter, chapter 7 of John, and I read this story, you have to understand that the purpose of the contents of this story is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He starts there. Why does he start there? Well, the belief is that Jesus came from the line of Judah. Judah and the offspring of David. David, who would have a, a, a lineage all the way down to Abraham. And that God made a covenant with Abraham that he would make him a, the father of many nations. That he would come to one and bless one that he might bless everyone. That he might make a family and bring a family from all the nations of the world so that every race, creed, and color may put on display the beauty and diversity of who our God is. Human beings made in his image and likeness. And when you put it together, it is a wonderful mosaic of the beauty and majesty of who God is. Is. And so the first point that he is trying to show you is that Jesus is actually the Jewish Messiah. Messiah is the same word that we get Christ from. So, so if you're new around here, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You just throw that away, all right? It, it's, it's a title. It's a title which means uh, Messiah, anointed one, Savior, picked and chosen to be a deliverer. But maybe you think that Jesus is the only person to ever have this title. You see, there are other people in the Old Testament who had this title, who were called messianic, who were saviors, who were Christ-like figures. Maybe you're reminded of, of Moses, who leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. He says the, the famous words, let my people go. He's a deliverer. He is someone who's going to set them free. And they have a foreshadowing of this. And they're actually at a festival where they're commemorating this very event. It was called the Feast of Booths or Tents or Tabernacles. These, these places of dwelling. 
And it was all foreshadowing what God would ultimately do. And so if you could picture everyone like a county fair pulling in their RVs and all their tents and their camper vans, and, and they were sitting down in the valley and up on the ridges. And, and when, the, when the, the sun would go down, all of a sudden inside of all the tents, there would be these lights. And if you would look at it, it would be a spectacle. You wouldn't be able to see the landscape, but you would see this city set on a hill. All of a sudden you begin to see the imagery pointing forward. Jesus at this festival will make this claim and we'll deal with that in a couple weeks that I am the light of the world. And then he'll say, you are this light, a city set on a hill. And so they're commemorating this, this idea that, that there is a Christ coming. He came once in the form of Moses. He came another time as King David, appointed king to rule and reign. And yet you realize that kings can become corrupt like all of us, friends. Somebody say amen to that. Where the old adage is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and we are not exempt from that. But the whole story of the Bible is that over and over God gave kings and made Israel prominence but they never could quite live up to that standard. They would become corrupt, blind and drunk on their own authority and power and that corruption would plunge them into chaos and they were looking for someone to bring order out of the chaos. But the problem is, is that the chaos that you perceive all around you is no match for the chaos that is inside of you. And so they're looking for a Christ, a savior to deliver them. But here is what Jesus came to do, not to deliver them from Caesar as Moses once did from Pharaoh. God has bigger plans because if he liberates us but doesn't change us, then chaos will ensue. To do the same thing over and over again and expect diff different results is insanity. And yet he comes not to deliver them from Caesar, but to deliver them from sin. And what he wants to show us is that he is indeed the Christ, but even more than that. And see, they have some stipulations for that, but they're so fixed in their perspective that they cannot see all of the jigsaw puzzle coming together that all of Scripture would find its yes and its amen in the person of Jesus. The whole story from beginning to end has always been about Jesus. This isn't my principle. It's not my mantra, and I wrote it on the wall for my own amusement to give me a theme in every single sermon that we could never quite exhaust that theme because you could look at Jesus for all of eternity and you would never plunge his depths, friends. See, Jesus made that claim. Remember the, remember the time where he, after his resurrection, somehow he's disguised. He's hidden in plain sight, and he meets these boys on a journey on a road to Emmaus. We call them two fools on a road to Emmaus. Why do we call them fools? Because they begin to tell Jesus stories to Jesus and they miss that they're with Jesus. Right? Foolishness, friends. So let's be careful not to be people who tell Jesus stories to Jesus and miss the person of Jesus, it's very easy to do. If he's physically there with them, how much more do we have to trust his spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth and look at the scriptures that we might find 
Jesus. You know one of the dumbest things we ever did was the WWJD bracelets. You remember that? Right? Some of you are like, uh, oh, so, <laughs> like some of you put in your pocket? Dumb, really. Yeah, that's what I said, friend. Uh, you remember that? Talking to the wrong crowd? That was a crowd. Come on. Some, some, you know, you don't want to lift your hand and show off your bracelet. Right? Right? It's kind of... Uh, and that stood for what would Jesus do? It's the worst question we could ask because now Jesus is subjective to what you think he might do. See, instead of asking the question, what would Jesus do? I need to actually ask the question and look for the answer. What did Jesus actually do? And then follow him from there. That's good preaching. Amen. Right? Thank That's my corner right there. What's wrong? I know most of you. Right? Like, we're going to have a conversation after. Anyway, right? Like, uh, the reality is, is I have to look at what he did, not subjective. I have to actually not assume my perspective that I might miss what he's doing because I can become so locked in to knowing what Jesus would do and how the church should respond and how Christians should behave that I'll become radicalized and frustrated with anyone who does anything different than my perspective. You see what I did there? I'll say you're totally going the wrong way. And yet they've studied the scriptures and they found themselves to be in foolishness, folly. So let's not be people who do that. Let's actually look at what the scriptures are telling us about the person of Jesus. Paul tells Timothy, a young preacher, he says, listen, Timothy, study to show yourself approved. You get a verified blue check mark, right? Show yourself approved unto God that you could be a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed that you can rightly divide truth. Where does shame come from? Shame usually comes when you think something's going to work out a certain way or you believe something to be true and you find it to be folly, foolishness. You know, I can't believe I bought that. I can't believe I believed that. I can't believe I bought that used car. That guy sold me. I didn't work hard enough to see what was going on under the hood. Are you with me? Sometimes we can make decisions, think we're moving into truth, and move into folly. Friends, we as the body of Christ more than ever have to work hard to find truth. We have to work hard not to find ourselves in folly, not pointing fingers at others and declaring that they are totally going the wrong way, yet ask the question, where is Jesus? What would Jesus not just do? What did he do actually? And then follow him completely and wholly. And if there's malice or anger in our hearts, then I have to ask, have I been trapped in my own perspective? Have I limited to God to what I see instead of asking God to show me how he sees? Someone say amen to that. See, there's so many, thanks, Mark. Uh, there, there's, so many, there's so many parts of this puzzle that John is trying to show us. He writes that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The first part of this resume is that Jesus would be the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. But here's what they begin to argue. They go, we know where you come from. But when the Christ comes, we won't know where he comes from. We know you're from Nazareth. You're from Galilee. 
And then they'll go on to make a debate and they'll say, doesn't it say that the Christ will come from the seed of David, that he will come from Bethlehem? And yet maybe you know the story. Maybe around Christmas you realize that that whole story plays a grander part. That he would be, God would use the, the, the greed and the fear and the, and, and the lust for power of Herod to call a census for everyone to be counted and to control everyone that Joseph would have to leave Nazareth, take his young pregnant fiance and bring her to Bethlehem where they would find no room and he would be born in a stable, yet he would be born in the city of David. Today, a savior is born. This is not a normal, this isn't just like driving to Lompoc or, or driving to Santa Barbara. Hey, let's, let's, just, let's just take a little, we're gonna go over here, we're gonna go to the DMV, we're gonna work that out. And, and, and yet, if you were to go to the DMV, you'd find that that is an eternity. And, uh, and, and yet, this journey, it's not a trip that you would take on a regular basis, maybe every couple years to fly across the country. Maybe this is a journey that you have to calculate and set out. And so the, the oddity of this idea that someone from Nazareth would be born in Bethlehem becomes aloof to them. They missed it. They don't do investigative journalism. They just put what Ever news line works best for the narrative. And so what they say is Jesus is discredited, yet they don't do the investigation to realize he was actually born in Bethlehem, fulfilling a prophecy that the Christ would come from the city of David. But then there's another prophecy. See, Jesus would not grow up there. They would travel back to Nazareth. He would come from Galilee. But the scriptures say that the Christ would be called a Nazarene. And so it would be preposterous to think that someone was born in the city of David and they would leave the city of David to go live in Nazareth. Yet all of these prophecies, all of these hundreds of prophecies that have to be 100% true for this to be the Christ, John writes these details that you may be confident that Jesus is the Christ. See, they're taking a resume and maybe it means nothing to you, but the start is that he would come to this one that he might bless everyone. But if we can't check off that part of the prophecy, the equation, then everything else is discredited. And so he starts by saying he's the Christ. The second part is he wants to show you that he is the son of God. See, Jesus makes this claim. He says, not only was I sent by God, he makes this claim that he comes from God. Meaning, meaning that somehow what God is, is also who he is. Not only does he send him, see, prophets were sent. Prophets were sent like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he sees a vision of the throne room of God and there's all these crazy angels and these creatures and they're flying around and all of a sudden they hear the counsel of the Lord say this, who will go for us? The same language, the plurality of language, these hints to show us that God is somehow multifaceted. He is a multi-person, yet he is one. So why would the throne room say, who will go for us? It sounds just like Genesis where it says, let us make Man, who will go for us? Who shall we send? And Isaiah should not be speaking up. He speaks up and says, I'll go, right? Who shall go for us? 
He goes, here am I, Lord, send me. See, prophets were sent, but not only was Jesus sent, he comes from God. And so when he says, you may think I'm from Nazareth, you don't even realize I was born in Bethlehem, but I come from God. What a claim to say that he and God are one in the same. And if you knew the Father, then you would also know me. I was watching a video the other, just last night of, of an evangelist trying to evangelize a Muslim man. And he gets into this debate and, 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 and I, I understand his conviction and I understand maybe his tact, but he's made his way into folly because even the evangelist doesn't understand that there are different titles that John is trying to give us, the puzzle being pieced together. So I remember I worked in a, in a factory in Louisville, Kentucky. I said that right, Louisville. You guys say it like you got marbles in your mouth. Louisville. It's not Louisville or Louisville. Okay, that's free. Uh, and I remember working in UPS, and, and it was like the United Nations in UPS. And, and, and some of the people I worked with, my close coworkers, were, were devout Muslims. And, and we would have these conversations, and they had a lot to say about Jesus. Did you know that the Quran talks about Jesus more than any other figure? You know, the only female mentioned in the Quran is Mary. I mean, it has a lot to say about Jesus. See, people have a lot of stories and a lot of narratives. And you could find yourself, if you're not studied, moving into folly where shame ensues, that you don't have a right answer. And so even this evangelist, this well-known evangelist, tries to go up and, and he talks to this Muslim man. And, and, and the Muslim says, show me your Bible. He's even going to let him use his scriptures. He says, if you can find one scripture where Jesus claims to be the son of God. Jesus never claims that. And he says, well, no, he's the Messiah. And the Muslim man says, yes, I believe that too. He's Mashiach. He is the Messiah. But he's not God. He's not the son of God. And see, there was a distinction, especially for people who are looking. Yeah, he checks that box, but he doesn't check this box. But yet John is writing, do you remember, that we may believe he's the Christ, the son of God. Now, here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't claim himself. Why? He says, because I'm not going to come on my own authority. Could you imagine someone showing up? Like, let me show you who I am. Right? Like, you know how that's like when people brag about themselves. It's a turnoff, right? Amen. And yet Jesus says, I'm not going to make the claims about myself. Notice, and the, and the man brings up John 4, the evangelist brings up John 4, where the woman at the well in Samaria says, are you the Christ? Because they say the Christ will come and he will tell us all things. And Jesus says this, I am he that is speaking to you. But he says he's the Messiah, but he doesn't make this claim of son of God. Actually, what he claims more than any other claim, he calls himself the son of man. It's an homage to Daniel 7 where we see an image of the ancient of days and one like the son of man who the ancient of days gives prominence and rises him up, gives him a throne and calls all of creation to worship him and he makes the enemies of the earth his footstool. But yet if somehow the son of man is not indeed God himself, God, the ancient of days has broken the first command which says to have no other gods 
before them. If Jesus says, love the Lord your God who is one and worship him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and then people worship Jesus as God and he doesn't stop them, unless he's God, he's a wicked man. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine someone not being who you think they are and they just let you go on believing that? I mean, if you thought I was a doctor, right? And there's a car wreck and you call me over and like, hey, Sam's a doctor, come over. And I'm just like, right? And I show up to the scene and they're like, you're a doctor, right? And I'm like, nah, you know, let's just see what happens, right? Would I be good? Would you consider me good or wicked and a liar? See, there's this woman who comes with an alabaster box. It's, it's a year's salary to buy this ointment that's in this box. And she breaks this box over the feet of Jesus and begins to worship him as God. And Judas gets upset and he says, listen, no, what are you doing? We could have sold that and given to the poor. And then he makes this statement that we've been wrestling with with our, our political persuasions and, and the infiltration of the social gospel, this idea where Jesus says, the poor will be with you always. But I'm here now, and I'm going somewhere, and you can't follow. Thomas says, show us the way so that we can't follow. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is not God and he doesn't stop people, from worshiping him as God? Well, why doesn't he just say it? Because he's not coming on his own accord. He's allowing the Holy Spirit to woo you and draw you and allow you to make the decision of who he is. When Peter, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? I mean, people have all kinds of answers. They're like, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're your cousin, John the Baptist, who just got his head chopped off, resurrected. Like, talk about a conspiracy theory, right? Right? He, 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 he says, some people, but then he looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Hey, a, a question that's been echoing since that moment to now that you have to wrestle with. Who do you say that Jesus is? More than what your pastor says, more than what your community says, more than what as a country who we think, who we make Jesus do whatever, who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter gives this answer. He says, you are the Christ. And how does he go on? The son of the living God. And Jesus says this, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, making this claim. See, people are looking and they can't seem to quite put all the pieces together. Even that evangelist, he goes for the Muslim man and checks off the Christ, but this Muslim man is asking, where did he say he's the son of God? We well, never stopped people from calling him the son of God. He never stopped them from worshiping him. He never stopped from forgiving of sin, which God alone is the only one who has the power because he is the one who's been transgressed against. And so then he is the only one who can forgive. So when he says, go and sin no more, your sins are forgiven. They would say, what? What are you saying? Who do you think you are? Then we get to the last day of the feast. The last day of the feast, Jesus stands up, 
right in the middle of this ceremony, right in the middle of this religious ritual. See, as they were celebrating the exodus and the camping trip they took for 40 years in the wilderness, there was this scene in the wilderness where God told Moses to to strike this rock and the second time speak to the rock. And out of this rock would flow this river of water. And it would be a, a, a spring in the middle of the desert. And so to commemorate this, to celebrate this tradition, the priests at the Feast of Booze, at the end of the celebration, on the last day, because this is one of the last events before they cross over into the promised land, he takes and they get these jars of water and they go to the top of the temple mount at the altar, the top. And they would pour this water onto this altar and the water would flow down to the people as a symbol of this life-giving water. And right in the middle of this ancient tradition, Jesus, it says this, on the last day of the feast, verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, what does John write? He writes that you may believe he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his names. And he writes the words of Jesus and says, if you believe in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What claim is he beginning to make? Man, if you were to look at Genesis 2, the detailed account of creation. Genesis 1 gives the overview. If you read chapter 2, it begins to zero in on the details. And what you'll see is there's this spring in the middle of the garden, this pool that bubbles up and gives life to all of creation. It actually says there's a river that flows out of Eden that spreads into four different rivers. And this waters all of creation. And then you get to Ezekiel 47, which is this picture of the temple. And the prophet is shown a picture of the temple. But out of the temple is this river. And he first measures it. And he thinks it's so deep. And he measures it again. It gets deeper. And then he measures it again. And it gets deeper. And now he's over his head. The river is so deep and so wide. And out of the temple, it begins to give life to creation. And then if you were to look in the book of Revelation, you'll see a throne, one who sits on the throne, the lamb who was slain. And out of the throne, there's a river giving life to all of creation. Jesus says this, and John goes on to say, he spoke of his spirit whom those who believed were to receive. Jesus makes the claim that he is the pool in Genesis 2 that gives life to all of creation. His claim in the middle of it is that from the altar, there will be a river. As he stands up and says, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. I'll give you rivers of living water. What he's saying is that he is the life that bursts through and gives new creation. As Paul would say, the old is passed away. The old is rendered powerless. And behold, all things are new. 
And then you're going to learn as you read the Gospels about this scene at the cross. The cross is the culmination of all the sacrifices that have been made in the temple for thousands of years. The altar where the priests poured water over, Jesus cries out and says, yeah, there'll be another sacrifice and it will be once and for all. And from this altar will life truly come. At the cross, Jesus breathes his last breath and says, it is finished. And he gives up his spirit. A Roman soldier will pierce his side and the Bible will tell me that blood and water flow. Now this, in the details of the gospel, was a death confirmation. What they were doing was to confirm that they had done their job and they had murdered Jesus. And so they pierced his side because post-mortem, the H2O in your plasma that make up your blood separates. It was confirming that he was dead but it was a symbol that from his death would flow rivers of living water. See, the whole story is about the person of Jesus and his announcement that he gives life. He bursts something through right here. He's water in the desert and his words are like a drink of water. You ever get dry mouth? Just me, like right now? Where like you literally need water to be able to speak. You ever notice that? I, I had this thing happen to me a, a couple years ago. I, I, I call it Watergate at the graveside. Because... I was doing a graveside service for someone and I didn't know the individual and they had called me because they didn't have a pastor and the family was out of town and there's just a few people and someone, a nurse had bust in a group from Adderdag and, and the family had sent story after story that was to be read and I was the only person there to read it. And about an hour in of reading these stories, my mouth gave up all that it had and there was no more water. I was, my voice was cracking and I couldn't talk. And people were looking at me like, what is wrong with this guy, right? Like, I'm parched, I'm dry, I can't even speak. And thank God for nurses, amen? This, this gal quickly ran to her car, knew what was happening, and brought me a little thing of water. And instantly, as my, my palate was, uh, was, uh, was quenched with water, I could speak again. Like you're, even to talk, you need water. And then they even think about that as a metaphor. When someone speaks words to you, of encouragement and love, we say, man, that was like a drink of water. See, Jesus has the words of life. You want to drink from the river of life? It is to drink of the words 
of Jesus. Not what you think he said, not what you speculated on, but what did he say and who is he? And when you drink of the words of life, the Bible says this spirit leads and guides into truth and it is the truth that sets you free. But if I'm gonna follow the person of Jesus, what he says is that he'll give life that in you creates a well, creates a spring. See, here's a litmus test for those who have been awakened to the life of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. You ever notice that for things to grow, it needs water? I had to learn that the hard way when I moved to California with grass. My first house here, people thought it was abandoned. I don't know. I thought sprinklers were the water hose and for punishment where I'm from, right? Like, and yet what we know in this valley is if you're going to have fruit, something's going to grow, you have to water. See, Galatians is going to describe the people of God this way, that people who have life, and an overflowing river that causes creation around them, they'll have fruit around them. Just like that garden in Eden where the river comes out and there's creation around. And here's what it says. It says that the people of God who have life, people will take the fruit of your life and they'll bite into it. And they'll say things like, mm, that tastes like love. Mm, I'm getting another note here. Uh, tastes like patience and goodness and gentleness. Long-suffering, these are the fruit of the Spirit. See, the litmus test for you to know, do you have this life? Do you have this wellspring? I don't know, is there a garden around your family? Do people come in a desert in a world that is thirsty and looking for something to drink, something to eat, do they bite into your life? Because that's where life is. And you have to ask the question, am I a spring or is my well run dry? If you're thirsty today, drink from the well of the person of Jesus who gives life Life from his death. And the universe has been telling us every time you go through the grocery store, it is a monument that something had to die to give you life. Every plant, every animal, every sacrifice. And yet that's been the whole story that death will bring life. His death has formed a river of living water. Will you drink? And will you have something for a thirsty, dying world? Will they come to you as an oasis looking for the words of life? I pray that you have the words. I pray that you'll speak and you'll give them a drink that they may taste and see that the Lord is good. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I thank you that you've made us 
the church an oasis. That we're not simply a mirage. That what we are on the outside and what we are on the inside are something separate. But let what they see be what they get. A place that is fruitful. Waiting for harvest. And let us to those who are looking for a home. Just as in the Old Testament, you, you had people who planted a field to plant a part of their field for the refugee and the out-of-towner and the person passing through that they may take and eat. You did that as a symbol today that we would be those who have something for those who are looking, who are lost, as we too once were blind, but now we see. We're lost, but now we're found. Let us be a wellspring of water coming from us embracing the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, making something beautiful right in the midst of the desert. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise? <laughs>